OrthoFastFacts, your quick fix in orthopaedics. Hey everyone, welcome to OrthoFastFacts' seventh episode, and this is where we change tack slightly and delve into a bit of anatomy, and in particular surgical approaches. Now, anatomy is something that we learn a lot at medical school. We don't forget, we relearn, we re-forget, we learn again, we forget again. It's the cycle that we go through, but it's absolutely vital to have a deep and comprehensive understanding of anatomy, particularly with relation to surgical approaches for all your examinations, and particularly exit exams, such as the FRCS or the EBOT or any other one that you're doing. Um, we'll cover all the common approaches that you need to know about, and in particular, we'll get into detail where you need to be able to show the examiner that you've done this approach, if it's a common approach, and that you understand all the structures and what's at risk and where you can go and where you can't go. Now, it's obvious when someone has learned the approach in a, in a parrot fashion and they're just repeating it out to the examiner, it sounds very mechanical, very boring, very rigid. Try and be more animated, uh, a bit more excited as you're talking about it, and, and try and show that you've seen and done this, uh, particularly as, as it's a common procedure. So I would recommend that for all surgical approach, approaches you have uh, a, a way that you um, discuss a systematic um, manner in which you get a patient ready, so clearly you're going to know the operation that you're going to do, the correct indication, you have a fully informed patient uh, that's been consented adequately and they're completely prepped for the operation, they have the right anaesthetic and they're lying on the table in the, in, in the correct position. Now after that um, you need to know your landmarks very clearly, you need to then talk about where you're going to make incision, particularly if you're thinking about an extensile approach following the initial incision. You will discuss the internervous plane if there are any, then you will walk onto superficial and deep dissections, discuss the structures at risk, and by this point you've totally slammed the exam and you're doing extremely well. Okay, so today we're going to start with uh, approaches to the hip. Now, we'll start with the anterior approach to the hip. Now, this is a, a, a common approach it's used in pediatric and adult practice, and in in the adult practice, it's commonly called the Smith-Peterson approach. And in pediatric uh, practice, we use a more modified incision called a bikini incision. It's also known as a Salter approach. As in the same person described the Salter-Harris classification and the Salter-Pelvic osteotomy, which we'll discuss in other podcast episodes. So why would we use an anti-approach to the hip? Well, the most common emergency reason is an anti-approach in a, a child or an adult for a septic arthritis of the hip for drainage. We also use it in children for an open reduction and pelvic osteotomies for developmental dysplasia of the hip. Uh, we might use it to just open the joint up and get synovial biopsies or take fluid from the joint. Um, in, in the adult population, we might use it for a total hip arthroplasty with an anti-approach. Uh, we might use it for uh, pelvic fractures, such as anterior column fractures, for open reduction in internal fixation. And then there are some unusual causes, such as exploring the femoral nerve, or looking for anterior forms of uh, 
impingement of the hip, although we tend to move more towards either a surgical dislocation approach or an arthroscopic approach for femoroastabular impingement these days. So um, we're going to talk about uh, the smith Beeson or Salter approach. Now uh, the position is patient supine, we put a sandbag under the hip, often we put it slightly higher than the hip under the lower back so that the lateral area of the hip is clear so you can approach it particularly if you're doing something on the pelvis. Uh, the landmarks that you need to know are the anterior superior like spine and the iliac crest and the incision is, uh, uh, is centered around the, the anterior inferior like spine, sorry anterior superior like spine and tends to run uh, parallel to the iliac crest about a, one or two centimeters distal to it. Now in the Smith-Peterson when you get to the anterior superior like spine you turn distally and, and the reason being that you can then extend it further downwards and really expose the whole femur if you need to. Um, but it tends to vertically go down, heading towards the lateral side of the patella. In pediatric practice, we, stand, uh, we tend to stay um, completely um, in, in, in Langer's lines, as it were, so for a cosmetic incision that stays in the bikini line and then goes uh, over medially past the anterior superlax spine. That's a better cosmetic result. The next step is to go through the skin and fat, and then uh, we look for the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve of the thigh. Now, the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve of the thigh originates from the lumbar plexus. Its nerve roots are L23, and it's coming across from medially to laterally, and it runs in between the tensor fascia lata laterally and the sartorius medially. Uh, we often find it because there's some crossing vessels uh, a few centimeters below the anterior superior like spine that are superficial. If you see those, the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve is in that area. We then uh, locate it and mobilize it immediately. And now we're looking for the internervous plane. Now the internervous plane is between tensor fascia lata laterally and sartorius medially. Now tensor fascia lata is supplied by the superior gluteal nerve. Now how do you know it's a true internervous plane? Well the nerve root of the superior gluteal nerve is L5S1. The sartorius medially is supplied by the femoral nerve and its nerve roots are L234. So the internervous plane is between L234 and L5S1. That's why it's a true internervous plane. And once you get through that gap, you're, you can dive deeper and we get down to the next structure that we're interested in, which is the direct head or the straight head of rectus femoris. And that comes off the anterior inferior neck spine. Um, and once you follow that down, you can see where it's originating from. You have two options. You can either stray lateral or medial to the direct head. Say if you go lateral to it, for example, you're then um, going into an internervous plane between the rectus femoris, the straight head, and the gluteus medius, which is laterally. Uh, the gluteus medius again is supplied by the superior nerve L5S1 and the rectus femoris is supplied by L234, so it's an internervous plane. In reality, and particularly in DDH operations, we tend to take off the origin of the rectus femoris at the anterior inferior like spine. Now, that could denervate, denervate the muscle, but it doesn't because um, the nerve to rectus femoris that comes from the femoral nerve uh, comes in a few centimeters distally, so actually you're very safe in taking that off and down. And then if you reflect that distally, you can get to the deeper structures. Now around this area, more distally, there are vessels of the lateral femoral circumflex, 
that um, across the distal part of the scap between the tensor fascia lata and sartorius, you might need to ligate those so you can get a good view of the acetabulum and DDH. Uh, uh, if you don't ligate them, you can often you may hit them and then it will bleed. So that's a bit of a problem. So once you've taken off the um, direct head or straight head of rectus femoris, what we expect to see is some fat and then the capsule of the head, because that should be the next layer. In reality, there's another bit of muscle that's lying on top of the capsule. And in DDH, that muscle can be quite prominent because it acts as a secondary restraint to anterior dislocation of the hip, particularly when you've got anti-uncovering of the acetabulum. That muscle, which you'll find in Gray's anatomy, is called um, iliocapsularis. It's also known as psoas articularis, and it's an extension of the psoas from medially where psoas is inserting into the lesser trochanter. And it's a bit of muscle that comes across onto the capsule. Once you take this muscle away, you get onto the capsule. And then you can expose the capsule anteriorly, but also laterally, um, superiorly, and medially. Medially, you can find the plane between the capsule and uh, the psoas that's inserting the lesser trochanter. So that's the sort of dissection down to the hip joint. Now, further proximally, you want to see the iliac crest and the inner and outer table of the um, iliac crest very clearly. Now, to be able to do that, you need to incise through the iliac apophysis, the iliac apophysis that's overlying the iliac crest, and then start taking off the periosteum on the inner and outer table of the pelvis. On the outer table of the pelvis, you're basically taking off the abductor muscles, which are the gluteal muscles, off from the lateral table of the iliac crest. And once you expose that all the way down to the sciatic notch, uh, you can really see the capsule at its superior end. On the inner table, uh, you do the same. You take off the periosteum, but you're under iliacus, which is on the inner table of the iliac crest. And again, you take it down all the way to the sciatic notch, and that gives you a really good view of the iliac crest. Um, so you can do pelvic osteotomies if you need to, particularly in children that are over 18 months of age, where you might need to add a pelvic osteotomy to your open reduction. The other structure that you need to be aware of is the psoas muscle, which is running just medial to uh, iliacus, and they join up together, and there's a iliopsoas tendon that crosses over the brin. You often need to find this as this is a tight structure and can prevent a good reduction of the, of the dislocated hip. And so we tend to open the periosteum um, that you've lifted off the uh, inner table of the iliac crest, of the iliac bone, sorry, um, and then you find the psoas tendon and cut it. Now you've got to be very careful here, the femoral nerve is not very far away, so you need to be absolutely sure that you are cutting cellulose muscle and not the femoral nerve. Once you've done the uh, capsulotomy then there are several structures you need to look at for an open rush of the hip. That's not the point of this particular podcast episode. We will cover that in um, management of DDH in a future episode. But the important thing is here is that you've now got a really good exposure of the um, hip joint down to the acetabulum and also the pelvis in case you need to do a pelvic osteotomy. It's not really much of an extensile approach beyond this. You can't go too far distally on the femur. You could do in the Smith-Peterson approach because you've got the um, vertical incision. 
that I mentioned earlier. But here we don't tend to. And then the main structures at risk in this approach are the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve can be injured superficially when you first open it. And, um, and more deeply, the femoral nerve is at risk um, when you're exposing around the uh, pelvis and the inner table. And, and finally, we talked about the ascending branch of the lateral femoral circumflex artery, which should be identified and divided to give you proper access to the um, acetabular structures. So I hope that's been helpful. That's uh, a quick summary of what you need to know for the anterior approach to the hip. It's a versatile approach. It's a very common approach. It's a good one to be questioned about by your trainer and your examiner. And the more you understand it and understand the anatomy and particularly the, the planes and the internervous planes, the better positioned you are to really succeed in your exam. So I hope that helps. And see you next time on the next episode of Autofast Facts. Bye.